Crypto didn't, for reasons that we all understand, didn't act like a traditional industry. So instead of taking that time to come into compliance, crypto said, hold my beer, watch me DeFi. <laughs> Today, I'm interviewing Jill Williamson. Jill, also known as Crypto Mom, is an attorney that specializes in working with early stage crypto companies to find a path for legal compliance for their products. While this might not seem relevant to Bitcoin, her background on the compliance side of these financial surveillance laws is interesting because she focuses on the nitty gritty details of how the compliance actually happens. The broader questions of, is this compliance good? What are the social implications? How does this affect society? We don't really get into that. And while I think that would be an interesting conversation for a future date, I think that her insights on how compliance actually works today is potentially more valuable so we can understand why things happen that don't seem to make sense. For instance, how come all of these altcoin projects seem to be getting away with flagrantly breaking the rules? And Jill has an answer for that. I hope that this conversation is as educational for you as it was for me. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Crypto Mom, a lawyer in the blockchain crypto space. I met her at a conference where there was just a lot of Web3 NFT hype everywhere. And discussing her skeptical take on what we were looking at, I realized that legal counsel is someone that's actually paid to have a skeptical opinion. And I thought that might make for an interesting conversation. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Crypto Mom, also known as... Oh, that's my cue? Uh <laughs> we leave the gaps in. It, it makes it more fun. <laughs> Um, also known as Jill Williamson, senior attorney at Gravis Law and also the head of their compliance and regulatory practice. You mentioned that you almost accidentally became a lawyer. What's the story there? So when I graduated from high school at 17, I left home, joined the army. I spent seven years in the army. And uh, by the time I got out of the army, I was married and I had a small child. I often say that Texas is the last place where the army left me. My then husband was stationed in Texas and I was working there and he was going to be, you know, moved from San Antonio, reassigned to Fort Hood, which is outside of Austin. At the time, and I'll admit this is for some people an entire lifetime ago, your GI Bill benefits expired 10 years after you left the service. So I, I did some mental arithmetic and realized that if we spent three years at Fort Hood, then the next assignment was likely to be overseas and it was going to be hard to get a master's degree or some advanced degree overseas because the offerings are much more limited. So I thought to myself, I should go back to school. And then I thought to myself, and I need a job where you know, as an army wife moving every three years, I could tell people what it is I do. So when we moved to San Antonio, you know, I had a bachelor's degree in management science. So when people ask you, like, what do you do? What I really wanted to say was, I don't know, what have you got? And I'll tell you if I can do it. But apparently that's not I'm a good recipe for getting right a job. This is actually good stuff. <laughs> so I kind of went through my mental list of advanced degrees that give you a job title. And I thought to myself, I'm not nice enough to be a teacher or a nurse. And I would slip my wrist if I were an accountant. So I guess I'll go to law school. I had never met an attorney. I had no idea what attorneys did. I had no idea, for example, that you actually have to be licensed in every state in which you practice. So it's actually a really bad job for somebody who moves every three years. But I, I got in um, and then my husband left me. So I wasn't an army wife, but I was a law student and did become an attorney. And it turned out to be a really great decision. 20 years later, I, I have no regrets. My wife has been binge watching Suits, mainly because since we have a small child, there are just these periods of time where you can't really do anything productive and you're kind of exhausted. So I'll look over her shoulder and watch an episode of Suits. And I'm assuming that Suits is basically a pretty realistic depiction of the life of a attorney. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a documentary. I think right, basically fair. a documentary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly the, the first few years out of law school, I did not spend hours and hours and hours doing stultifyingly boring document review or anything like that. It was all just like suits, like straight to court, uh, client to courtroom and, you know, 24 <laughs> hours to, or less, um, exactly like that. Right. And like the court dates, they just come flying because there's so much excess capacity 
in the legal system, right? It's not like you need to, you know, book a hearing months in advance or anything. No, exactly. They're waiting for you, basically. And your practice is so flexible that when a client walks in the door today and you have to go to trial tomorrow, you have capacity to handle that. You don't, right. you don't have to pull like three all-nighters to prepare. And everyone's a 10. Well, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a given. I'm assuming you started doing crypto stuff at Gravis Law. How did Gravis Law begin interacting with the crypto startup space? So actually, I, I started doing this work before I came to Gravis. I was in-house. And when I left my in-house position to come back to private practice, that was around 2016. I'd worked at, I think I mentioned, like very large law firms in D.C., and I'd done white collar. And then I went in house and I was deputy chief compliance officer at Cigna, where I, I built up their global anti-money laundering and sanctions and anti-corruption programs. I switched to a, a chief compliance officer role at a, a mid-sized public company, also with global operations. When I came back to private practice, it was around 2016, you know, right around when ICOs were starting to, to really be buzzy. I think I came back to private practice maybe six months before the Dow report came out. And so the firm that I was working at at the time, they had a lot of securities attorneys that were very interested in ICOs and blockchain stuff. And, you know, it occurred to me that that was actually a really good space to practice in my sweet spot, which was anti-money laundering and sanctions and regulatory compliance. And none of that stuff was in the conversation at the time. And, and honestly, it's still a pretty small part of the conversation. So I started building my practice then. My husband and I moved out to Seattle and continued building the practice and then eventually moved to Gravis. Have you always looked at the crypto space? And I'm sorry to our listeners who flinch every time I say crypto. I'm just using that term because I think it's probably more appropriate for the kind of businesses that need Jill's services. But did you always look at crypto from a this is a good place to practice law perspective? Or were there any other aspects such as the technology or the potential social implications of some of the decentralized systems? Did any of that interest you or seem important? I'm an extremely practical person. I'll have to say that. The social promise, decentralized applications, that's probably less interesting to me but the technology itself, the distributed ledger technology, all of that seemed immediately obvious. Applying that digital ledger technology in financial services, primarily in societies or, or regions that are underbanked or unbanked, also seemed immediately obvious. I've spent time in Ethiopia and in Yemen and working with clients and people in places where it was clear to me that this technology could be a real leapfrog technology and give access to banking and financial services that the traditional financial services model just wasn't getting done for them. I'd like to detour slightly to your observation that there is a problem with a lack of financial services in parts of the world like Ethiopia. When you say digital ledger technology, does that mean Bitcoin or does that mean something using a blockchain and there are private companies managing it? I don't know whether one or the other is a better solution. I'm thinking of it in the same way that cell phones were a leapfrog technology for those those countries. So, you know, when I was in Ethiopia in the early 2000s, we spoke to people who lived in villages that not only didn't have telephones, they didn't have running water or electricity. The advent of the cell phone, they didn't go from like we did in the United States from party line to dial phones to touch toe phones to wireless phones to cell phones, right? They went straight to cell. They went from no communication to cell phone, completely frog technology. I agree with your analogy there. I guess to debate that more, it's more of a question of macro, monetary, whatnot. So it might not be as, as interesting to hear us debate that. One of the things I often say I'm not is an economist. Do you see a difference between the flavors of crypto startups? So is there something different about Web3 versus crypto versus blockchain versus Bitcoin? Actually, have you even worked with a Bitcoin startup? Because I feel like the majority of startups are token focused. Yeah, they're running off of Ether or some other chain. I've worked with at least one company that started with the idea that they would use Bitcoin as their base store of value, if you will. But over time, they are not in the end going to use Bitcoin. 
Yeah, they discovered that whatever their application was, it didn't actually need or couldn't pay for the security of the Bitcoin chain, and they moved to some kind of cheaper altcoin chain with low fees, maybe? Um, in part, and less volatility. Bitcoin as a store of value, it's gained so much traction as a investment slash speculation vehicle that it doesn't seem particularly useful as a store of value. I agree that it's not a hedge against volatility. I think the argument that Bitcoiners would make is that if you have long time preference, it seems to protect against inflation and seizure of assets. But on shorter time preferences, which people without a lot of savings are, you know, mostly on a shorter time preference, and also businesses seem to have very short time preference in my observation. Yeah, I think that's right. As a result, I think Bitcoin is more useful as a, I'll say investment, but that's maybe not the right term technically. But to your point, a long term store of value, not a store of value to be used like sort of in everyday commerce and transactions. And that's actually gets to something that I think is kind of a conundrum today, which is there seems to be some value in the developing world for people to use stable coins issued by an unregulated financial company on the Tron blockchain versus Bitcoin, simply because if you have low time preference, US dollars is probably the best thing to be holding at this point in history. That's still true. That's again, it's sort of a both a leapfrog technology in that respect. You know, if it's a safe, reliable, well-designed stablecoin pegged and backed by U.S. dollar, it gives people in countries that may not have access to U.S. dollars, either for local law reasons or just technological reasons, the stability of the dollar through the technology. Right. And one interesting aspect to that is when people seem to do this risk calculation, holding dollars in a local bank account or holding local currency or holding this dollar stablecoin may be issued by a less than reputable company, sometimes the dollar stablecoin still makes sense because those other options are also really bad. That's right. And there are countries in which you cannot hold U.S. dollars in a bank account. And one issue with holding dollars in a bank account, which I've encountered before living overseas, is that you don't actually get the exchange rate. The exchange rate is whatever the bank wants to give you that day. And it's usually at least 20% lower than the market rate. Right. Even if you can open a dollar bank account, yeah, you're not going to get a good rate. Um, you may not get good interest. One of the things that I, I have found really impactful in my thinking about this is when I was in the army, I was a, a Russian linguist and I spent some time in Moscow. I spent like six weeks in Moscow working in the, the embassy, helping to distribute humanitarian aid. Long story. The upshot of the story is that I worked with a lot of young Russians and this was right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So early 90s. And the economy was tanking. They had stagflation. The value of the ruble would deplete, you know, 20, 30, 50 percent every 24 hours. It was, you know, just crazy. It was a hyperinflationary episode, right? Sure. Yes. Not an economist. Those are probably the right words. It was really bad. The young people that we worked with as, as translators or, or other, you know, drivers or other in other ways facilitating our work. They got paid in cash, in dollars, and not very much, like $25 a week or something. But, you know, we'd come back to work on Monday and they would tell stories about how they'd gone out to nightclubs and gotten bottle service and just spent crazy amounts of money over the weekend. And my 22-year-old American self, my first thought was, how irresponsible. Why aren't they saving that money for their futures? And then I realized that they couldn't. They couldn't deposit the money. They couldn't open U.S. dollar bank account. And if they converted the money to rubles, it was worthless in a very short period of time. And there were no kind of accessible investment vehicles. There were no mutual funds. And this is very early Internet days, almost pre-Internet. So, you know, they didn't have access to Internet brokerages or anything like that. So essentially, they were getting paid a fortune in cash every week, and they had no way to save it for their future. Right. I mean, because they also didn't have the security to hold lots of cash. I mean, I really appreciate this point of view because it's hard to get through to North American citizens and citizens of Northern Europe who just take for granted the property rights, the general level of security that they enjoy. Simply being able to open a bank account and know that the bank is very, very unlikely to abscond with your funds and you know tell you to pound sand and then call the police on you if you complain. This is actually not the common experience of most of humanity. And so one interesting thing about 
Bitcoin is that it's actually difficult for people who are sort of financially privileged. The yuppie elite really have trouble getting Bitcoin, whereas people who've experienced hyperinflation, Russians get Bitcoin, Ukrainians get Bitcoin, Venezuelans get Bitcoin, Americans not so much. It's hyperinflation, but honestly, it's also organized crime, corruption. In the 90s in Russia, and, and I've been back since, it hasn't changed if for the better. The mafia, they controlled everything. And the amount of money that you had in your bank account wouldn't actually be private. You know, the bank might tell you it's private, but I can promise you that they disclosed to their local crime boss the names of people that had high balances. That kind of extortion or pure theft was extraordinarily common and still is. Whereas if you buy Bitcoin, you not only can buy it and hold it anonymously so that nobody knows that you've got a million dollars worth of Bitcoin unless you tell them, but you can store it in ways that it's not easily stolen from you. There's economic uncertainty, but then there's also like pure security and Bitcoin or similar cryptocurrencies provide a lot of solutions for people who live in those situations. That point actually leads me to a question I had about your background working in anti-money laundering and other sorts of financial compliance roles. Because a common belief among Bitcoiners is that actually KYC, know your customer and anti-money laundering rules that require people purchasing Bitcoin and people transacting with Bitcoin to submit personally identifiable information. This, to me, seems like the most effective attack on Bitcoin. And there's a view in this community that actually KYC is an illegitimate activity because it reduces the security of people you've KYC'd because, and I say this as an information security professional, it is not possible to secure sensitive information in large organizations. It's simply not technically possible. What do you think about this concern that KYC endangers the people who are being identified? It's not an unreasonable concern, less so in, as you said, North America or Western Europe or places where people routinely open bank accounts and that information is kept reasonably private and not used to extort or steal from people. But in circumstances where that is not a given, then it's a reasonable concern. I think like any regulation, it's a balance between the risk presented to individuals versus the risk of money laundering or you know illicit money flows being undetected and the risk that that presents to society as a whole. How that balance comes out, to be honest, I probably don't know enough about the individual risks to really assess that. But certainly from a regulatory standpoint, it's it's all a balancing act. There is this narrative that we need to control illicit flows of money. Yet, and I can't quote the article, I mean, I've read attempts to analyze illicit flows of money. And the conclusion that I've read is that AML KYC is essentially worthless in terms of stopping illicit finance. It's so bad at that, that the question is, what is it really for? So it's it's a really interesting question. And so A, the, the one thing that it's potentially good for is sanction screening. So if you're on the a terrorist or a narcotics kingpin on the Office of Foreign Assets Controls, especially designated nationals list, you can identify that. But when you're doing internet transactions or just non-person to person transactions, that there are limits, right? Because a name that somebody gives you and even ID and ID verification, there are limits to the accuracy of that. And tying the individual who gives you their ID to the wallet or even bank account, the opportunity to just put up a straw person to hold the account and then just give you full access to it, give the SDN full access to it is, is obvious. So I have been more interested in, and I would love to see some creative thinking by regulators about honestly, the opportunities that the blockchain presents to risk weight rate wallets instead of people. That's a, an analysis, the transaction history of that particular wallet and the wallet that came before it and the wallet that came before it. That kind of analysis is not availing in, in TradFi because all of the transactions take place behind that walled garden. There are some provisions for sharing of data between financial institutions, yada, yada. But essentially, if I'm a bank, I cannot see all of the transactions that someone 
conducted at a different bank with that account. So if they want to transfer money to me, I know who they are, but I don't know where their money's been or what it's done. And that to me is a more interesting and more availing analysis than just knowing who they are in the way that we can do it in this sort of remote banking world. I would be interested to see some more forward and more creative thinking on what effective KYC and transaction monitoring might look like with respect to blockchain transactions. You know, obviously chain analysis is has been leading the way in this kind of research and analysis. And, you know, the work that they can do is stunning and, to my mind, way more effective. I think I would certainly push back on that point of view. As someone who's also worked in the production of machine learning models and data analysis, the work that Chainalysis does is not particularly impressive to me from a technical standpoint. It's probabilistic. So there's very rarely a concrete judgment about a transaction. There's just probabilities about what kind of a transaction is taking place. And to me, that actually seems potentially worse than our current system of KYC because the analysis is so complex that chain analysis, they simply simplify it to a risk score. And it's completely arbitrary in my view. And so this allows you to be even more discriminatory and political in your risk scoring, because when asked to justify the risk score, there's so much subjective analysis there. And how does your model treat this parameter or that parameter that you could hide a lot of things in there? A lot of things that I think that most people would be uncomfortable with. I understand that point of view. And and of course, I'm not looking at it from a technological standpoint. I'm contrasting it to the way that traditional financial institutions do their risk-based compliance. Because Traditional finance institutions do the same. They assign transactions a risk score, but they do it with far less information. And so, you know, if you, for example, have a bank account and for 10 years you've never had a transaction larger than $1,000 and all of a sudden you want to have a $50,000 transaction, that transaction could get blocked because that change in pattern creates a, a risk score that the bank has deemed to be potential money laundering. Perhaps. There are multiple issues here, but one issue is one, I think that this conversation assumes that that kind of constant surveillance is necessary. And it might be in a traditional financial system, because if it's a illegal transaction or your account's been hacked, the bank is kind of out of the money. Like it's a trust-based system. In a way, the bank needs to trust that all of the customer's transactions are not going to get them in trouble. Whereas on an open ledger system, If I'm interacting with some intermediary and they send me Bitcoin, now I have it. I don't care if the next moment they get sanctioned by some regulator because I have their Bitcoin. No one can claw it out of my account. So I don't really care about the risk scoring of the people I'm dealing with as long as I'm comfortable with the nature of our transaction. This is sort of the point I make. Those are two different questions, though. So what you're talking about is more of a fraud risk, anti-money laundering risk. I mean, A, the government requires that you do it because the government doesn't have the information. So basically... The way the current system is set up, the government, and this is U.S. centric, so the U.S. system is actually significantly different than most most developed economies, the way that they handle anti-money laundering. But in the U.S. system, if you're a financial institution, you are required to do anti-money laundering screening, transaction monitoring, and then you have mandatory reporting requirements. And so you're essentially a proxy for the government because they don't have access to the data. Only the financial institutions do. The goal there is to make it difficult for people to either take the proceeds of crime or to fund you know, activities like terrorism by finding these high-risk transactions or high-risk individuals and reporting them. That's part of the reason that I think that, again, focusing on anti-money laundering specifically and not fraud prevention, why I think the blockchain would drive a complete rethinking of, of that model. Because on a public ledger, if you knew that person A had defrauded a bunch of little old ladies and converted that money into Bitcoin. So those are proceeds of crime, fraud, theft, the money that results from that is proceeds of crime. And then the depositing of that money in accounts and moving it around is the laundering to take those proceeds of crime and try to make them look like regular income so that then you can spend it without getting in trouble. If they take, you know, let's take our little old lady to frauder, they take the proceeds of that crime and they purchase Bitcoin with it. 
if you know that person has committed a crime, then, and if you know that they have purchased Bitcoin, you could then trace the proceeds of crime, which the government, let's say, the, the people who are trying to recover or discourage the laundering of the proceeds of crime, they can't trace that through traditional financial institutions because it all happens behind that walled guard. But on a public ledger, they can trace it. So they don't necessarily need financial institutions to be their surveillance proxy because they have a tool or investigation if they need it. Investigation of tracking down proceeds of crime is only part of the anti-money laundering story, but it is a big part. And conducting financial transactions on an open ledger really could change the way that we think about anti-money laundering and the role that financial institutions are required to play in that sort of system. Whether or not we think that government should be surveilling or investigating, that's a separate question. Under the current system, like I said, financial institutions are essentially the proxy because the government doesn't have access to the information. And, and I think we could completely rethink that. Okay, I, I think I see your point, because this is actually kind of a financial technology problem. So we're saying if we accept the current state of anti-money laundering requirements, then financial institutions have to perform invasive KYC on their customers because that data exists inside these closed systems that aren't observable to the government. Of course, the government could just plug directly into these systems if they passed a law, but let's hope they don't think of that. But with an open blockchain, because it's open and you know this means that the treasury can just run their own node and collect blockchain data on transactions, they don't need as much direct control or influence over regulated financial entities because they can go directly to the source for data. Right. We still have the regular constitutional questions about how they should collect that data and how they can use it. But yes, financial institutions aren't put in the position of essentially being the, the proxy surveillor for government. In the past couple days, so we're recording this on Thursday, June 16th, but over the past week, I think since Sunday, there has been increasing concern over a company that calls itself the Celsius Network. I would say that Celsius is a characteristic business of this cycle of Bitcoin and crypto adoption. So Celsius Network is actually a company. It's a Delaware C-Corp, I believe. And they issued a white paper. And in this white paper, they describe basically a borrowing and a lending platform. Except this borrowing and lending platform also has a token. And they call it a native token. It's called Cell. C-E-L, but actually it's just an ERC-20 token. And for those who aren't familiar, ERC-20 is a standard on Ethereum that basically allows you to create a asset on Ethereum. You can transact with this asset using an Ethereum wallet and paying Ethereum gas fees to move this asset around. Now, as you may remember from 2017, 2018, most of the altcoin ICOs that pumped and dumped in that adoption cycle were ERC-20 tokens. So for me, when a project has an ERC-20 token, that is a huge red flag because it basically means that, in my view, you're creating an illegal unregistered security and you're too lazy to do it on your own blockchain with your own code. So you're just doing it on Ethereum, which for me looks like low effort scamming. Now, what the Celsius quote unquote network does is you can deposit funds on their platform and you can borrow funds from them. And when you deposit funds in the form of cryptocurrency, they pay, I think, weekly or maybe even daily dividends. And when you borrow funds, they charge you relatively low interest rates. And so this whole platform the game is attracting customer deposits with very tempting interest rates. And what they claim is that on the back end, they're pooling customer funds and then lending them out to OTC desks, hedge funds, sort of institutional traders who need access to these funds to cover positions and whatnot. So when I hear that, I think, good Lord. So basically, you're taking customer funds and you're giving them to hedge funds without any backing. I mean, it's not like the hedge funds are putting up collateral to access these funds. These are completely credit-based, no collateral agreements. And then they're going to go and do crazy crypto trades with these funds, and you're getting a just a fixed percentage. To me, that doesn't sound like a very good risk-adjusted situation. But it actually gets even better because 
Celsius was identified as having been playing around in the Anchor protocol. I think they had like $500 million of UST, that stablecoin that went to zero, locked in the Anchor protocol, and they managed to get it out in time. But it lets you know that actually Celsius is doing very dangerous trading with their customers' money. And so my TLDR is that Celsius, in my view, is looks kind of like an unregistered hedge fund. They take customer money and then they do whatever the heck they want with it. Their terms of service make it clear that once people send money into Celsius, they should have no expectation of getting anything back. Celsius can do whatever they want with it. And on top of that, they have some interesting Ponzi scheme-like elements to it. Because if you deposit funds into Celsius, you can get paid in kind. So if I deposit one Ethereum, they'll pay me 1% Ethereum a day or something like that. Or I can accept payment in their native sell token and I'll get a higher interest rate. So for me, this looks like a Ponzi structure where instead of taking other customers Ethereum to pay an earlier depositor Ethereum, they're just printing money to pay people and I think that a lot of other scam projects like Hex, Richard Hart's Certificate of Deposits on the blockchain scam, which is also an ERC-20 token, they also try to avoid the legal definition of a Ponzi scheme because instead of robbing Peter to pay Paul, they create a whole new currency. So they rob everyone simultaneously with inflation to pay the next person. Now, to bring this to the present, on Sunday, there were some rumors about problems with Celsius, and then they later froze withdrawals, which is generally the first step to a platform like this going bankrupt and getting margin call. And they have a whole bunch of problems because they've basically made some very risky bets that are not paying off right now, and they're probably going to get margin called, and there is definitely not enough funds in Celsius to pay off all of the people who deposited on their platform. There's a lot of spaces where Celsius could be out of compliance with regulation. Ponzi scheme is a whole separate thing, right? Ponzi scheme is fraud. There's no regulation for fraud. There's a you know statute that and, and common law that says that defrauding people is illegal and it's a crime. Putting aside whether or not this is a fraud slash Ponzi scheme, they still have a fair number of issues. So starting with the, again, a lot of this is speculation because this depends on a real detailed and nuanced analysis of some factors, which I don't have because they're not publicly available. Is Celsius running a hedge fund or slash are these loans notes, which would be deemed securities. So they would be an issue of a security. And the one that's really jammed them up right now is this Celsius earn, probably combined with Celsius borrow. As a lot of you would recall, last year, Coinbase, which is publicly traded and therefore, you know, subject to significant scrutiny by the SEC and required to, you know, more or less work collaboratively with the SEC as they expand and grow their their products. They reported that they had been in discussions with the SEC about launching a Coinbase Lend product. Coinbase then reported that the SEC more or less rug pulled them and said that they couldn't launch Coinbase Lend because Coinbase Lend would be a security. Specifically, according to Coinbase, the SEC said that it would both be a note and an investment contract. This is probably a good opportunity to detour a little bit into what is and isn't a security because there's a ton of emphasis on the Howey test in this space. But taking a step back, the test for whether something is a security is basically a two-pronged test. Is it one of the enumerated types of securities in the Securities Act, one of which is an investment contract, or does it bear a, a familial does, it, does it look like a security or does it a look like a does security? It, does it look like one of those securities, right? It's the, the family resemblance test, as it's called. One issue I see in the crypto space is this idea that somehow regulators are like Mitch McConnell and they're like old fuddy-duddies who don't get it. And so if you just change a couple parameters of a traditional security, look, it's no longer a security. But like the law is actually sort of flexible when it comes to prosecuting these things. Yeah, it's clear what you did here is you changed some superficial details. But at the end of the day, we still have you're taking other people's money and now you're attempting to profit from it, right? Something like that. And honestly, security is more defined from the investor standpoint than the investee. Is that the word? Because securities laws are designed to protect investors. The bigger question is, are you giving somebody else money and essentially expecting to, to earn a profit through no or little effort of your own? Is it a passive investment, if you will? 
that's not the legal terminology, but that's the general framework. One of the enumerated types of securities is an investment contract. The Howey test is the test that's applied to determine whether something is an investment contract. But there's all other kinds of securities as well. There are notes, there's debentures, there's fractional ownership in petroleum wells. Like There's a very long list. The SEC said that Coinbase Lend was both a note and an investment contract, so two different types of securities. The test for whether something is a note and thus a security is what they call the Reeves test. We're getting super wonky here. A note, any kind of a loan is by default considered a note, but you can rebut that presumption by applying the Reeves test. Included in the list of things that are not securities are things like notes delivered in consumer financing, notes secured by a mortgage on a home, a short-term note secured by a lien on a small business. So there are types of loans that you can make that aren't notes. But the default is that every loan is a note. With that background, this lend product has a high likelihood of being deemed a note and thus a security. Now, I am speculating that they are cognizant of this because if you look at their terms and conditions, they specifically carve out the activities that U.S.-based persons can participate in or whether unaccredited investors can participate in certain activities. Celsius seems cognizant, at least, of the fact that their urn is likely a security and therefore you know, can only be issued to U.S. persons without registration with the SEC under certain circumstances. The risk for them there is that just having it in your terms and conditions that U.S. persons can't buy this is not sufficient protection against the jurisdiction of the SEC. And unless they've taken further action to ensure that U.S. persons don't participate in that particular product, I think they're at real risk of being you know, deemed an, an unregistered security offering. And that's just on the, on the lend product. Now, so you've said evidenced concern that because they're taking the money that they're borrowing and then investing in it in purely speculative transactions, that that's maybe a Ponzi scheme or a hedge fund. I don't think that's right. I mean, based on those facts, you know, I can borrow money and do anything I want with it because the individual who's giving me the money is, and, and that's, as I understand the way Blend is set up, if I borrow money from you and I say, I'm going to pay you 3% return, I owe you 3% return. It doesn't matter what you do with that money. You could put it in the bank, you could put it under your mattress, you could start a business with it. No matter what you do with it, you got to pay me back and pay me 3% on top. But is there a difference when I'm borrowing money from hundreds or thousands of people? Like it's clearly no longer a personal transaction. I'm creating a business around people giving me their money and then I'm giving them some return on that. Yeah, the questions there are twofold. And again, less about what they do with the money than to whom they're lending it. So as I said, first question is, is each of those loans a security? Second question is, if it's not a security, are they consumer loans? And consumer loans are highly regulated in all 50 states. And all 50 states have different regulations about what constitutes a consumer loan and what the restrictions are. Most states require that you're licensed if you're giving consumer loans. You know, there's specific disclosures you have to give. Again, the terms and services seem to contemplate that these are not consumer loans, that they're only giving them to accredited investors, in which case they seem to think that they're securities. I would have a real question about whether they have protected themselves against issuing those securities to unaccredited investors in the U.S. and therefore securities fraud and unregistered securities offering. You don't need to give the same kind of disclosures in a private offering, so like a Reg D to accredited investors that you do in a public offering, but there still would be a question about whether they gave sufficient risk disclosures. This goes more to your point about what they were doing with the money. If the note is a security, did they properly warn their investors of how highly speculative that the investments were that they were going to, and therefore how risky it was that they may not get paid back for their loan? I'll answer that for you. 100% they did not because they have their CEO doing video calls and going on Twitter and ridiculing anyone who questions what they're doing and basically affinity scamming their operation with a bank. They're trying to conflate it with FDIC insurance. They don't say 
were insured, but their language around neo-banking and unbanking and, and this sort of thing, it conflates their activities with retail banking, which is clearly dishonest. It's not only dishonest, but they're not licensed for that. And another issue is they also had an ICO. Their sell token, in addition to being this thing that they pay people yield with, and I think that is a Ponzi scheme in the sense that it's not clear that they're directly taking money from later investors to pay earlier investors. But if I have this token and I'm paying everyone in Monopoly money that I created. Print yourself. Yeah. There could be Ponzi structures there. But that sell token was also part of an ICO. I mean, we know that ICOs are illegal security offerings. I mean, it's it's like the same model as an initial public offering. I won't go so far as to say every ICO is an unregistered security offering, but it's highly likely, and those that are not are extremely exceptional. The interesting thing about that, and the real trick for a lot of companies, is that there's really no mechanism for a investment vehicle, an investment I don't even know what to call it, you know, token, let's call it, but it doesn't have to be a token. There's really no vehicle for that class of investment to go from being a security to a non-security. This is a place where the law really probably could use, and, and I, I don't say this lightly, there aren't a lot of places where I think the existing regulation doesn't do the work that it needs to do in this space. But this sort of, how does a token that's issued as a security grow up to be a non-security? There's no path for that. Why would there need to be a path? Well, I don't know that there needs to be a path, but I think there can be a path without creating any risk to consumers or investors. Let's take Celsius. Let's say they they did their ICO, but they did it in full compliance with securities regulations. So let's say they did a, a Reg S. So they only issued it to persons outside the U.S. and took all the Reg S measures to ensure that the securities didn't flow back into the U.S. Okay, that's entirely legal. But now those tokens are securities. Once they stand up their platform, presuming that the tokens have a consumptive utility, and I'm not saying that Cell does, but there are other cases when tokens have what they call a consumptive use on the platform. If those tokens were issued at that time, they would be utility tokens. They wouldn't be securities. If you issue them and they have like a genuine, legitimate consumptive use on the platform, it's not a security. But having already issued them as securities... You can't use them on the platform as a utility token because you can't use securities that way. So if you took a path where you could do a security issuance of a token to accredited investors or investors outside the U.S. in full compliance with the SEC regulations using an exemption to registration, there really is no reason that you shouldn't be able to convert that token for use as a utility token at a later date, except right now there's really no path for it because we never needed one. Or maybe there's a technological solution where you burn or send the original security token back to the issuer, which is arbitrarily easy because theoretically these are moving on open networks, and they atomic swap you the new utility token. So to me, that looks like buying it back and then there's an exchange rate to utility tokens. So that's essentially a SAFT, right? A simple agreement for future tokens, which is a takeoff of a SAFE, which is simple agreement for future equity. So a lot of ICOs thought they could do a SAFT. Let's take the investment now from accredited investors on an exempt offering. And once my platform's live and the token's no longer a security, we'll swap, um, you know, we'll, we'll basically issue tokens to those initial investors in return for their equity. The SEC has pretty much has shat all over that, that a SAFT itself is an investment contract, which everybody more or less agree, but that because it's essentially a pre-investment in a token, it's essentially a pre-sale for the token, that the tokens are still securities, you know. Whether or not I fully agree with that analysis is a, is a different question, but that's where things stand now is that you can't really pre-sale and exchange later. You know, so I see where your head's at, but the SEC doesn't agree. That's a place where we could use some regulatory clarity. And that is something that, and I haven't parsed it, so I don't have an opinion about whether it does it well, but that is a place that the Lummis-Gillibrand bill tries to address that sort of, how does the security token grow up to be a utility token? Yeah, I've looked at that bill and talked about it on our podcast already, but I don't think that you'll want to talk about it before you've really grokked it for a bit. Agreed. I It's a lot of work. It's going to take, you know, I've been needing to set aside like six to eight hours to really get in and grind that out. And I just haven't done it yet. 
Oh, we should have a, another conversation on that if you're interested. I'm sure that my co-host Chris would love to uh, participate in that. What I'm thinking is a really interesting lens for that bill is to take some of the seminal cases over the last six or seven years, like the Dow report, like the Ripple complaint, say, would these cases have come out differently? Are you going to write an article? That sounds really I was going to write a series. Part of the issue is like reading these bills in the abstract, you know, they're interesting. But for me, I think I mentioned I'm an intensely practical person. And so being able to put it into like very specific contexts will help me really parse and digest it. And I had this little brainstorm the other day that a really useful lens is to look at some of these seminal cases and see what would be different, if anything. And how do we feel about that? Yeah. Reading the bill and this conversation we're having about security tokens versus utility tokens, and then this bid on ancillary assets in the bill. To me, this whole conversation, I understand why we're having it, because this is the world we're living in. But I guess fundamentally, I think it's probably a waste of time in the sense that I think that just looking at practically what's happened with all of the thousands of ICOs, I think that they're all cash grabs, just because we don't really see any tokens other than Bitcoin that maintain any kind of value over time. They all have these kind of pump and dump mechanics. It's just, you know, you don't even need any data. You can just look at the price charts. They all just trend towards zero. Let's parse out from that actual native tokens, thinking Stellar, for example. So Stellar is... Another creation by Jeff McCaleb. McCaleb came out of Ripple. Ripple has an interesting story because there was actually an original Ripple project that had its own consensus mechanism. I think it was pre-Bitcoin. That consensus mechanism actually didn't work. And then Jeff McCaleb and whoever else his co-founders were, they bought that idea, founded Ripple Labs, and basically just pumped and dumped their own token to maintain the operations of that business paying other companies to release press releases saying that they'd form a partnership and use that token simply to use that news as a way to pump and dump the price to make trading profits, essentially extracting profit from anyone who was well, and, clever enough you know, to invest. Manipulating the marketplace, which is a crime. Yeah, exactly. And then Jeff McCaleb, I mean, this guy is amazing because he was actually the founder of Mt. Gox and he sold Mt. Gox to that poor Canadian dummy who then ran it into the ground. <laughs> but when Jeff McCaleb sold it, it was arguably already bankrupt. So, I mean, this guy is like... It's the very definition of failing up to be kind. I mean, he's amazing. Like nothing sticks to him. I didn't know the history. I didn't know the relationship between the history of Stellar and the history of Ripple. And I, I just threw Stellar out as a random example. But I have a very strong suspicion that Stellar entered into a non-prosecution agreement with the DOJ or SEC. Or both. Okay, spicy. Go on. And they're not the only ones that I suspect this about. And I'll walk you through my thinking because it's not based on any inside knowledge. It's based on outside observation and patterns that I've seen over the years that I think show that that's what happened. First of all, let's start with the basics. A non-prosecution agreement. So the way that comes about is you'll get a subpoena or a letter saying that you're under investigation or some something along those lines from the exact instigation is slightly different depending on the agency and depending on the, the suspected misdeeds. You know, you cooperate with the investigation, you hire a bunch of white collar defense attorneys, which is what I used to do from white shoe firms. They get in even while you're responding to the investigation and producing documents and putting employees up for testimony and proffers you're already starting your negotiation with the enforcement. This is one way to handle that, right? You already start your negotiation. There's several ways it can go. One, they can decide to press charges, in, in which case there's no settlement at all. Two, you can get what's called a non-prosecution agreement, which means they didn't press charges, they didn't prosecute, and you agree to a whole series of remediation matters, and if you don't do those things, then they can come after you. You're in breach of your non-prosecution agreement, and they can come after you. Non-prosecution agreements are not public. And if you are not a public company, they're never disclosed because, you know, only public companies have to disclose material events. Another alternative is called a deferred prosecution agreement, where it looks a lot like a non-prosecution agreement, but it's public because it has to be approved by a judge. If you see a DPA, you, you get a lot of information. You get the, the facts, and you get the allegations, and you get the legal analysis, and you get the the agreed upon remediation and terms and all of that because they're public. But if you get an NPA, it's not public. So when I see a company, it's not just a fintech or crypto company, any company that is significantly increasing their hiring in their legal and compliance departments, 
or has hired a new general counsel who has, you know, a lot more experience and a more blue chip background. Um, if you start seeing those shifts, that means one of two things to me. It means they're either going public or they're in trouble. And there are a number of crypto, fintech, blockchain companies that have you've kind of seen this pattern. And I generally conclude from that, since there's no public announcement of a DPA and they haven't, there's no, no talk of an IPO, that they were in trouble. And the bulking up of their legal and compliance departments is part of the NPA and the remediation that they promised uh, to stay out of trouble. Well, that makes a lot of sense. This actually reminds me of that profile of Justin Sun that was, I think, published in The Verge. Because Justin, he bought BitTorrent, the BitTorrent company, and then he hired some former regulator or something. Maybe this was actually, I don't think he was legaling up, but he was basically buying a bunch of former regulators to try and give him legal opinions that what he was doing wasn't issuing illegal securities when he created like the BitTorrent coin and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a pattern I think we've seen before, but but basically, you've identified this pattern in Stellar. They hired a new general counsel, I don't remember her name, who used to be at DOJ prosecuting financial crimes. That's the kind of hire that you don't hate to be so mean about companies, but no company in the world hires somebody like that unless they have to, because it's expensive and it completely shifts the way that you do business. And most companies don't, they don't welcome that kind of change unless they, they're forced into it. No, they're not necessarily forced into it by a regulator, but through circumstances where they say, ah, you know, we, we have to make this change. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stellar's done a bunch of things to sort of legitimize their their altcoin. They integrated with this application called Keybase that actually is a pretty good encrypted messaging application, but they integrated a Stellar wallet into it. And then they airdropped a lot of people Stellar, I guess, to try and distribute the ownership, make it look like it wasn't just this, you know, essentially printing money, giving it mostly to the founders, and then trying to create a, a thinly traded, you know, organic market that they could then dump their bags on, which I think is right. essentially what they wanted. And also it's a Jeff McCaleb project. So, I mean, anything touched by Jeff McCaleb is going to have these uh, characteristics. It's just how he does business. I strongly suspect that Ripple was probably under investigation for many years and actually was in the process of negotiating similar to Stellar and maybe related, but they didn't settle, which is why we saw the Ripple complaint so late, because you're tempted to say, well, they've been doing this for years and years. Ripple's an OG. Like, why did it take the SEC so long? I think it took the SEC so long because there was two or three years of subpoenas and negotiations and interviews, and they probably thought they were going to get to a a consent decree, you know, a, a DPA or NPA, and for reasons that only Ripple knows, or the SEC, or both, in the end, they didn't get to an agreement, and then the complaint was filed. And does this long timeline for prosecuting financial crimes seem problematic to you? Or do you think this is just, you know, what you have to deal with when we're dealing with sort of the complex interaction between finance and law? It depends. So part of what I think, lots of theories about this, but one of my pet theories is that we don't, we don't have a lack of regulation problem. So the reason that we have a lot of actors in the space who we know are non-compliant, even, you know, criminal, not, not properly licensed, not properly regulated. There are thousands and thousands of companies that we know fall under certain regulations and they're not abiding by them. I think it leads to the general conclusion that the problem is lack of regulation. By and large, I don't think that is the problem. I think the problem is lack of enforcement resources. Again, this goes to back to sort of enforcement patterns. Traditionally, what you'll see from an enforcement agency is there'll either be a new regulation or they'll discover a an industry trend where industry is not complying with the regulation in the way that the agency thinks they should be. But it's, you know, it's a wide trend. So it's it's probably more of a misunderstanding by industry than it is intentional wrongdoing. So the agency will put out some guidance and say either, here's how we're interpreting a new regulation or, hey, we realize that you all think this regulation says something, but here's what we think it says. And so take notice. And then they do what I call sort of tour behind the guidance. So they publish the guidance, and then you'll see them talking to industry groups, talking to the ABA. Here's the new guidance. Here's what industry should pay attention to. If you have any questions, you know, we're here to help. That's a year or two, maybe three. And a lot of actors sort of use that time to come into compliance with the new guidance. 
And then for the actors that don't come into compliance, they start enforcement. But by then they've really narrowed the field of companies to those who either extraordinarily clueless or intentionally flouting the guidance. In acting that way, they not only get to be reasonably fair to industry by giving folks fair notice, good guidance, and time, but they get to use limited resources wisely by narrowing the field of non-compliant actors. So you see them trying to do this with crypto, right? ICOs started taking off. The SEC writes the Dow report and publishes it. They say, we're not prosecuting in this case. But here's, here's how we think about this. Please pay attention. And then you saw a lot of activity touring behind the Dow report, talking about it, helping people interpret it. Started the FinTech Hub. They said, you know, if you have questions, come to us. FinCEN did the same. They, they published guidance in 2013 about the application of uh, anti-money laundering laws to crypto. And then they updated that guidance in 2019. And again, lots of public statements, lots of industry group talks, et cetera, et cetera. But crypto didn't, for reasons that we all understand, didn't act like a traditional industry. So instead of taking that time to come into compliance, crypto said, hold my beer, watch me DeFi. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We'll We'll create a new thing that's even more complicated. And therefore, how could you even regulate this? And even less compliant and even more risky for investors and consumers. They said, well, okay, we're going to we're going to start prosecuting. And I think, you know, we see that in, like I said, sort of the pattern behind the way Stellar acted. We see the Ripple complaint. But even though Ripple was very large, you might think that they would have acted like a traditional corporation and that they would have been concerned about the effect of that claim on their profits, if you will. Ripple said, hold my beer. While the value of Ripple did dip, it didn't dip for very long. And the entire community said, watch us, SEC, hold both of my beers. And so these agencies are now left without any real tools, not because they don't have laws, but because they don't have the resources to enforce against the ginormous number of bad actors. So, you know, they have focused on like genuine frauds. Good. You know, if you're going to focus anywhere with limited resources, that's a great place to start. But none of that has really moved the needle for industry moving into compliance. And so, honestly, I think they're at a loss. I think they just don't, they don't have tools. What about a model like in traditional finance, where instead of focusing on all of the individual bad actor projects, they just go to Coinbase and Kraken and say, we need you to apply these strict rules of securities. And then boom, overnight, 99% of assets get delisted. I mean, is that is that realistic or? Well, I mean, the SEC has already punished an exchange for listing things that they thought were at risk of being a security. Um, Poloniex, the Poloniex claim says, first of all, it doesn't say that they were trading securities and it doesn't say which tokens they traded that the SEC thought were probably securities. So not helpful, but also really banged them up for They had a process. They had a review committee that reviewed each token before they listed it and then decided whether or not they thought it was probably a security and could be listed. And some of the language, and I'm paraphrasing, but some of the language in that claim dings them for willing to take medium risk, which I find somewhat shocking. They never actually said that the tokens they traded were securities. And companies take risk all the time. Like that's what it is to be in business. So, you know, I'm really not sure what's behind that. And the documents don't really provide useful lessons except take no risk, which isn't a useful lesson. It might be the lesson that the SEC wants people to take, but it's not a useful or practical lesson for industry. There's actually some interesting background to Poloniex. I don't know if you're aware, but Justin Sun bought Poloniex. So Justin Sun of Tron and BitTorrent Coin owns Poloniex. And he actually has kind of kept Tron looking viable, even though it's not, it's not. I mean, it's clearly a dying, you know, illegal security that masquerades as a blockchain. But he made Tron the main trading pair on Poloniex. And so he basically turned that exchange into a little thing that kind of keeps Tron volumes higher because he sort of required that assets swap into Tron and out of Tron on Poloniex, which kind of juices their numbers. Yeah, that is interesting. I just pulled up the the press release on Poloniex and 
the SEC order finds Poloniex employees stated internally that they wanted Poloniex to be aggressive in making available for trading new digital assets, including digital assets that might be considered securities. Further, Poloniex determined that it would continue to provide users of the trading platform the ability to trade digital assets that it characterized as medium risk of being considered securities. You know, so what if they're not actually securities? Yeah, I mean, it's like we found a bad email. Right. I mean, taking a risk should never be punishable unless you're wrong, right? Taking the risk in and of itself is not a crime. Or is it? Well, not under the law. To your earlier question, I mean, that was a long way around to should Coinbase delist? Absolutely, they should delist anything that's a security. I'm assuming that SEC is not being very helpful in giving them guidance into exactly what those things are. I'm also assuming that Coinbase has discussed their risk and assessment of their tokens with the SEC in some great detail, both in order to get the approval to be publicly listed and to, you know, to avoid uh, SEC prosecution. And prosecution is not the right word, but on an ongoing basis because Coinbase is publicly listed. So they have to stay in the good graces of the SEC at all times. Yet Coinbase's business model is still to list incredibly thinly trading altcoins, put them on their front page next to Bitcoin, and then, you know, Coinbase employees pre-buy these coins and dump them on retail on the first day of trading. I mean, this is documented. That's a whole other interesting thing because there's no insider trading of commodities, right? Insider trading is a securities law, um, which is also one reason that, that all the, the articles around that open sea the former OpenSea employee are so puzzling because they all say insider trading, but you know no, it's wire fraud. It's it's fraud potentially, but it it's not insider trading in the Coinbase context. It's either could be either fraud similar to that OpenSea case, and we'll see if that gets proven up because you know we've just had charges that they have a long way to go. But or it could be market manipulation. Market manipulation is easy to talk about. It's incredibly hard to prosecute. And there are so very few market manipulation cases because market manipulation is what they call an intent crime. Um, You have to prove the corrupt intent to uh, manipulate the market. It's not enough to prove that you did manipulate the market. You have to prove the intent to do so to create an artificial price and profit for it from it. And that's really hard to prove. Well, market manipulation, my understanding is that it normally relies on some trade where you do something that doesn't seem economically logical, like you lose money on one trade to make money on another trade, often by like breaking a peg or something like that. At the same time, speculative attacks clearly aren't illegal because George Soros did it to the Bank of England. Someone did it to the Terra Luna peg recently. So it seems like a thing humans like to do to make money. Right. And so I would say one reason that the cases that are often prosecuted are the cases where you're making trades that don't make financial sense is because that's the way you prove the intent, because it's so incredibly hard to prove intent. So in those cases where you can show, look, this the only way you make sense of this trading activity is that you have an intent to create an artificial price then that's a case you can prosecute. It's an inference of intent, but it's hard. But uh, we, we strongly suspect we have very, very well-based suspicions that market manipulation is rife in this space. It's more common than not. And again, that's, that's where I say it's not a problem of law. It's already illegal. It's a problem of, of enforcement. Now, we've been talking for over an hour and a half, and I'm kind of blown away because like, I just have to say that your analysis and thoughtfulness on these complex issues is impressive and making me realize how shallow and hot some of my takes have been. (laughs) Clearly, I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. It's part of why I like doing this work is that it is uh, highly nuanced and very complicated and that the intersection of so many different bodies of law, you don't certainly get bored. One of the reasons that some of my clients, to be fair, call me crypto mom, is that we spend so much time on this iterative process where they explain it to me and I say, great, I think I've got it. Start doing the analysis. I think, nope, lost it. Don't understand anything. I know nothing. Uh, do you have a half an hour? We got to talk about this again. Because there's there's just a lot. There's a lot packed into each of these. You know, there's there's three or four different regulatory frameworks we didn't even talk about with respect to Celsius. Um, there's just there's a lot packed into all of this stuff. What's interesting is that fundamentally, and I look at things from a Bitcoin first perspective, but Bitcoin is a social technology. 
it's attempting to be money and money is clearly a social technology and the code that's running is a rough approximation of the social consensus surrounding what bitcoin is at the same time bitcoin couldn't exist without this technological framework that previous attempts at private digital money didn't have access to i think that's one reason why bitcoin in and of itself, and, and ETH for that matter, native tokens to a chain with utility, with wide distribution, not centrally managed. Those are the least problematic of everything that's happening in this space. So it's less about what Bitcoin is than it is about what people are doing with it. And the same with ETH and the same with any altcoin or side chains. It's, it's really less about what it is than what people are doing with it. I often say that, you know, a token it's just a token. It is no different than a piece of paper in that a piece of paper could be anything. It can be a title deed to a house or a car. It can be a marriage certificate or, or divorce decree. It can be a, a note or a loan or a love note. But the actual technology, the piece of paper is nothing. Tokens are the same, but digitally. Before we go, would you like to hand off listeners to your website or Twitter, wherever you like to engage with people? Probably the easiest way to contact me is through LinkedIn or through my email because I'm old and I don't uh, telegram if I can help it. Um, so jwilliamson at gravislaw.com. Now, who should get in touch with you? Who is the founder, creator, builder that you want to talk to? So, you know, we'll, we'll talk to anybody um, because we work with a ton of non-fintech founders as well. We really do like to work with early stage and startup companies. In the fintech, crypto, blockchain, technology space, probably almost anybody, any token issuer, any project that's using tokens. NFTs have a lot of really nuanced, well, initially they had a lot of nuanced uh, intellectual property issues. Increasingly, NFTs have functionality, which then also gets them into the a money services business and securities realms as well. What I like to advise is that before you build your product roadmap, you know, hire a lawyer, get a consult. You know, you don't need to pay them to be your permanent lawyer for all things, but it would be well advised to get a sense of where the regulations lie and what you need to do about them so that if you can adjust your product roadmap, you can do it early rather than doing it late where you have to make a ton of adjustments and slow down your launch date, make your investors unhappy, or put off the time when you can get investment, or you have to build a bunch of regulatory and compliance measures, or get licenses, again, all of which delays launch. Early strategic advice will definitely pay off in the long run. Um, obviously, we have lots of clients that don't come to us early, and you know, then we do our best to, to help them navigate to where they want to be as well. But I find uh, early strategic advice is, is the most efficient way to, to get to launch when you want to and the way you want to. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and insights. That was a fantastic conversation, and I feel like it hints at future conversations. 